and uh, <clears throat> it's been a very very long one but we're almost done now so just hang in there again for those of you who may be joining us freshly or newly uh, this book is devoted expressly to the Hebrew believers who have been pulled upon to come back into the old covenant so the writer of this book wrote the book to encourage those Hebrew believers to stay on track and to show them the glory and the magnificence of what we have now in the new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, there is so much tonight. And so, what I want to do, let me just read first in the message translation, uh, the entire chapter 9. Then I'm going to go back and begin to uh, do some uh, breaking down of the message. Hebrews chapter 9, message translation, it's on overhead. That first plan contained directions for worship, an especially designed place of worship. A large outer tent was set up, the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presence were placed in it. This was called the holy place. Then a curtain was stretched and behind it a smaller inside tent set up. This was called the holy of holies. In it were placed the gold incense altar and the gold covered ark of the covenant containing the gold and of manna, Aaron's bird, I mean rather, Aaron's rod that birded, the covenant tablets, and the angel wing shadowed mercy seat. But we don't have time to comment on this now. It's amazing how this writer will throw some things out and tell you, really, we can't deal with it right now. So I'm wondering why everyone went there to begin with. <laughs> but we're going to deal with it tonight. Verse 6, after this was set up, the priests went about their duties in the large tent. Only the high priest entered the smaller inside tent and then only once a year offering a blood sacrifice for his own sins and the people's accumulated sins. This was the Holy Spirit's way of showing with a visible parable that as long as the large tent stands, people can't just walk in on God. Wow. Under this system, the gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter, can't assuage the conscience of the people, but are limited to matters of ritual and behavior. It's essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. Oh, glory to God. I just want to take a break and say, Jesus, thank you. This is a complete overhaul. I don't know if you drive a car that's having problems every now and then. You go to the mechanic, they tune it up, uh, they change the carburetor back and forth, and they tell you, you know, in a thousand miles, you're going to need an overhaul. <laughs> and until you do so, you're going to be coming back in and out of the mechanic shop. And finally, the overhaul day, overhaul day comes. They have to remove the entire engine, break the things apart, and put it back together, and you have a brand new car. Amen. 
we have an overhaul system for our folks that is based on a far more promises, better covenant. Let's, let's just read on. Okay, verse 11. But when the Messiah arrived, so now we know that this is the overhaul. When the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood instead of instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. Verse 16. Like a will that takes effect when someone dies, the new covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death marked the transition from the old plan to the new one, canceling the old obligations and accompanying sins and summoning the heirs to receive the eternal inheritance that was promised them. He brought together God and his people in this new way. Even the first plan required a death to set it in motion. After Moses had read all uh, had read all the terms of the new plan of the law, God's will, he took the blood of the sacrificed animals and in his solemn ritual sprinkled the document and the people who were its beneficiaries. And then he attested its validity with the words, this is the blood of the covenant commanded by God. He did the same thing with the place of worship and its furniture. Moses said to the people, this is the blood of the covenant God has established with you. Practically everything in the will hinges on a death. That's why blood, the evidence of death, is used so much in our tradition, especially regarding forgiveness of sins. That accounts for the prominence of blood and death in all these secondary practices that point to the realities of heaven. It also accounts for why when the real thing takes place, these animal sacrifices aren't needed anymore having served their purpose. For Christ didn't enter the earthly version of the holy place. He entered the place itself and offered himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't do this every year as the high priest did under the old plan with blood that was not their own. If that had been the case, he would have to sacrifice himself repeatedly throughout the course of history. But instead, he sacrificed himself once and for all, summing up all the other sacrifices in this sacrifice of himself, the final solution of sin. Everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death 
was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took up sins forever. And so, when he appears, when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to greet him is precisely salvation. Oh my goodness. This is just so incredible to just think of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the, the more we dive into this and the more we do this study, for me, it, Jesus just gets, it gets bigger every week, gets mightier, gets more glorious, and you have a greater appreciation for who he is and what God has done in and through him. So now let's just go now and begin to uh, break it down some so we can have some takeaway points for tonight. Hebrews chapter 9 again. I read it in the message translation because it's an easier read. And it's written in common language that everybody can follow and it flowed a little easier. Uh, but now let me just go back. In order to understand what we're about to read here, as I've said in previous lessons, it's always good to read maybe a verse or two before the chapter. In this case, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. And now I'm back to the New King James. Hebrews 8, 13. It says, in that day, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not what I said. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Then indeed, Hebrews 9, 1 now, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So this is, what, this is what's happening here. The author has told us that the old is passing away. It's obsolete. And now it's about to get into, onto a new subject. But before it does that, it talks a little bit more about the old that's obsolete, that's passed away. He wants to tell us some things about it, leading to the point he wants to make in this chapter. So it tells us that even that old covenant that's obsolete had in it some divine ordinances and an earthly sanctuary. In other words, there were certain protocols that went with worship back in that day. But not only the protocol that went with the service or the worship, there was also an earthly sanctuary, referring now to the tabernacle of Moses. And it goes on to give us some details about this tabernacle that opens a little new dimension of truth to us in this day and time that corroborates some things that God has already said. Now, verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared in the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had a golden censer, now the Amplified Translation, the NASB, the Message Translation, all of them refer to that golden censer as the golden altar of incense. Significant. Very significant. Okay? So, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, first of all, 
you will notice that this writer did not go into intricate details about the tabernacle. Now, those of you who studied the tabernacle, you notice that in Exodus 25 onwards, when this revelation was first given to Israel, there were very precise instruction and details given concerning this tabernacle, like dimensions, the height, and so forth and so on. But in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 9, this author did not take the time to go through all of that. Why? Why would you imagine? Because he's writing to an audience who already would have been familiar with most of these details, and therefore it was not necessary for him to go down and just talk about each one of these articles of furniture, dimensions, and all of the things we've learned over time. It was not necessary. These guys were already very, very grounded in this thing. Let me just suffice to say, though, you and I know that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. All-knowing, all-seeing, and is everywhere all, all at the same time. Way back in Exodus, in spite of the, God, the fact that God was all present everywhere at once. As we speak here now, he's here. He's in Iraq. He's in Jamaica. He's in Antigua. God is everywhere. But in spite of all of that, way back then, he tells these people, in spite of the fact that I'm everywhere present all the time, build me a tabernacle. Yeah. His presence is everywhere, but he said, you know what? In spite of that, I want my manifest presence to still be with you. That's important. So the essence of the tabernacle way back then, even though God was the God of all of the earth, the earth is the lots. The fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell there. We knew that, that God, but yet in spite of that, God said, you know what? Let them build me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell among them. So it was not content to just be a God that's God of North America, God of South America, God of Africa, God of Canada, God of whatever you want to name it. He said, yes, I am the God of all of these places. But you know, in spite of that, I want to be your God. I want to be present in your situation. I want to be present in your house. I want to be present in your circumstance. I want to be there with you 24-7. I don't want my relationship with you to just be reduced to an abstract something out there somewhere and say, God is around. Yeah, no, no, no. Yes, I'm around. I know that. But in spite of that, I want to be with you. Now, having said that, moving forward here, it is very interesting that even though this writer did not give us all the intricate details about this earthly worship sanctuary, but it gave us enough to help us understand something that's happened between when it was first given in Exodus and what he's seeing now by revelation. This is what he said to us. This is the tabernacle. And those of us that have seen the tabernacle knows there are really three major parts. The outer court area, the holy place area, and the most holy place or the holiest of all. I don't want to get into all the teaching I don't, because I don't want to lose anybody. Uh, this is not a class time for that. But just suffice it to say, in this house of worship, three rooms. Now, isn't it amazing that with a congregation of three million people, potentially, 
they have three rooms to worship in. The largest of these rooms, the outer court area, when you look at the dimensions, really you can't have too many people in there at one time. And yet that's the way God built it. And then as you progress from the outer court, going into the holy place, and the holiest of all, it narrows down. And yet, God says, let them build this tabernacle that I may dwell among them. The implication is, God understands that everybody will not come through there. Number one. Number two, that system back then was built in a hierarchical way. Let me explain to you what I mean. All of Israel could come to the gate of the outer court. All of them. They could come from their tents and come to the gate. But only the priests can minister in the outer court area to slay the animals. The priests and the Levites. Levites are the helpers, the deacons. That's helping the priests kill the sacrifices. All of Israel to the gate. The priests and the Levites in the outer court. The priests alone in the holy place. And only the most, the most high priest in the most holy place. Do you see the hierarchy? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not sure that you really get it. I don't know that we fully appreciate what Jesus has done for us. If you live back in Israel, as a common man, you can only come as far as the gate. That's it. You lean over the fence to see what are they doing in there? What's going on? You're hearing animals booing, mooing. You're hearing the slaughter of the animal. But you cannot participate. You can just say, ah, what, what's going on about it? Did you see what they're doing? What, what are they doing? Your, your neck is just constantly trying to see. You're not the priest. You can't get in. Then when you're a priest and a Levite, you can participate in the slaying of the animals. Priest alone, you get into the holy place, tend to the be- uh, table of showbread, you are treating the lights. You are providing incense for the altar of incense. Ah, my goodness. And only once a year, the most high priest can go furthest. Today, because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no limitation. You can write your own ticket in God. Go when you want, when you like as much as you want. It's a come boldly. You don't have to go with trepidation. Back in the day, those guys were scared to death. They were afraid. They didn't know if God was going to accept what they were bringing. They had no idea what was going to happen. They went with fear and trembling. But today Jesus says, come boldly to the throne of grace. The place where grace is manufactured. So you can obtain help and find grace in time of your need. What is the need? Oh, Jesus. Father, I just bless you. Thank you for your wisdom. The wisdom that caused you to send your only begotten son to be the ultimate answer and solution for the sins and the challenges of mankind. We bless you and we worship you. So three compartments. The holy place and the most holy place being the most prominent. So first of all, you saw that there was hierarchy. Second of all, you saw that there was no access for everybody. Only few people. 
with certain credentials can get in. But the important thing I want to show us here is what this writer said in verse 4. He said that the golden altar Okay, let, to, for it to make sense, let me read it again. Hebrews 9 verse 3. Please, pay attention to what he said in verse 3. He said, I'm behind the second veil. Did you see that? So whatever is about to list is behind the second veil. What is behind the second veil? Okay. The golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. Wow. To the casual observer, we may just miss what this man just said. Okay, let me see if we're going to catch it. Go to Exodus 30. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Now, here in Exodus 30, we are given the details of all these articles of furniture in the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 7, specifically, we are given the information on the golden altar of incense. Please don't miss what God is doing here. Okay? Verse 1, Exodus 30. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. And it gives the dimensions. I'm not going to read all of that. Now let's jump to verse 6 because of time. And you shall put it where? Before the veil. Please take note of that. The original instruction was that this altar of incense was to be placed where? Before the veil. Now, please go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. In Exodus 30, it was to be what? Before the veil. But in Hebrews chapter 9, where is it? Behind the veil. So, what happened? Is it the U-Haul or the moving company? When they were moving the tabernacle, they've, they've, they've misplaced the furniture? Is that what happened? Or is this a, uh, a mistake? This is huge. And this is what's so interesting about the Bible. How it harmonizes and confirms itself. Itself, rather. Original instruction. And God said to Moses... You must do what I'm telling you exactly the way you see it. So you have no room yes. to make any changes. So in Exodus 30, the golden altar of incense had to be before the veil, but in Hebrews chapter 9, it's behind the veil. What's happening? Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. It is not a mistake. The moving company did not make a mistake in moving it into the wrong place. This is a divine design. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. How? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is going on here? 
In the holy place, you have the table of showbread, which represents the body of Christ. You have the golden lampstand, which represents the power of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit on the word of God. And then you have the golden altar of incense, which represents prayer and worship. That was what was taking place in Exodus. But after the resurrection, after Jesus became the most high priest, when his position shifted, there was a necessity, the golden altar of incense that represented his ministry to auto change. So now, rather than him just be in the holy place, the Bible tells us he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So by revelation, Paul saw this thing. When he saw it, he did not see it in the holy place. He saw it in the most holy place where Jesus is right now. Oh my God. Oh, I'm about to have a fit. This is serious business because this confirms to you and I what we are reading is not just mere letters. This is real. It is true. Etow, as he said. And we need to embrace this truth with the same fervency, with the same passion as God has given it. Jesus lives and is making intercession for us right now. Hallelujah. Oh, it's powerful. Just to see, it's almost like a chess play. To just see the thing was here once, and we know you just can't move it on your own, and the next time we see it, it's in the most holy place. Because his ministry has changed. It's not just rabbi any longer. It's not just teacher any longer. It's not just uh, 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 prophet any longer. It's all of those things, but beyond and above that is the most high priest. And his ministry is right next to the throne. Now, the takeaway for you and I, takeaway for all of us in this whole thing, just in these first five verses we read, let me read one more verse and then, and then we, uh, we talk about the takeaway. Verse six. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, what things? The things he just said above. The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services. Let me just stop right there. So this is what we have. Three compartments. Again, out of brevity, just to make it short and quick and simple. In the outer court area, that's where they killed the animals, the blood is shed, that symbolically represents our salvation. The holy place area is where the priests come together to fellowship. They eat the bread, they trim the lights. The most holy place is not a place of fellowship. No, 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 I'm sorry. It's not a place of, of ministry, of service. Okay, let, let me back up. Let me back up. I don't want to confuse you guys. Three distinct areas. The outer court is where we celebrate our salvation. The holy place, we just read in verse 6, is where we do services or ministry. The most holy place is where we do fellowship. Fellowship with who? God. God. Not believers. No. No. So three areas. Salvation, service, fellowship. But let me say it in a different way to make the point I want to make. At a court, we come 
man, I'm born again. Praise God. Thank God for the power of the blood. Through the blood of Jesus, my sins are forgiven, remitted. Praise God, I'm saved. Right there, salvation. I celebrate my salvation. That's good. Beyond that celebration of salvation, I need to move a step further to the holy place. Get involved in services. Am I trimming lights in the church? Am I serving the bride in the church? Am I lighting the golden altar of incense in the church? I have to be involved as a priest. Because remember, this holy place is a priestly function. He has made me and you to become kings and priests. He's washed us by his blood. Loved us and made us to become kings and priests. Which means, as a king priest, I must have some ministry I'm doing. There must be some service that I'm involved in in a holy place. Am I baking the bread? Am I trimming the lights? Or am I lighting the incense? I celebrate my salvation at our court. I minister in service in the holy place. Ah! In our most holy place, I sit. That's where I'm going. Salvation, service, sit. Let's say it one more time, please. Can you say it with me? Salvation, service, sit. One more time, please. Salvation, service, sit. Huge. Yes, I need to celebrate my salvation. I'm born again. I'm excited. I praise God for that. What is the art working of that praise? Service. Service. I'm ministering, servicing my brothers and my sisters. Essential service in the house of God. But after I've done that, I need to sit. Do you know the reason we get born out? Because we, we celebrate in the outer court. We serve in the holy place, but we never sit. Amen. We never sit. Huge. Amen. The fuel for your celebration. The fuel for your service comes from sitting. Huge. What happens when I'm sitting? Is then a one-to-one. That's when I'm pu- he's pouring on me and I'm pouring back on him. The deep is called upon the deep. <laughs> Glory to God. Let me show it to us in the scriptures. Huge. And hopefully as we are sharing tonight, you need to be asking yourself, where are you? Are you packed at salvation? Thanking God for the blood, which is important, it's essential. We're not demeaning that at all because you have to have that. Are you a champion of service? Or do you have both under your belt and you're sitting? Because if you don't sit, you'll run out of fuel for, the, for salvation. Your joy will be gone. If you don't sit, when you're serving, you're serving out of obligation and routine. You're angry because nobody else is serving with you. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 38. Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Martha, that's out of court. He welcomed him. Absolutely. You're welcome. 
sings all kinds of songs of praise about him. Jesus, you're welcome. Okay? Verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary, who what? Also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. She's gone beyond just being at the gate or at the holy place. She's sitting. She's sitting. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Why was she distracted? Why? Why was she distracted? Because she does not have enough fuel. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And she, and Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. You say, Pastor, why is it so important to sit? Is this sitting position just a position of leisure, a position to just chill? Is that what it's all about? No. There's a lot more to it than that. It is in that sitting position that you get to know who you are. The reason for the sitting, oh my goodness. How many of you will say to me when you're playing racquetball, Real, real, you really have a good time playing racquetball. Is that when God talks to you about the things in your life that you need to fix? The sound of the ball, bah, 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 playing back and forth, does not allow you to hear anything. You are too focused on the phone, what you are having, what you are doing, to listen to you. Everything else is filtered out. Now it's just all fun, if you will. And it's good. Recreation is good. I'm not, I'm not knocking that at all. That's not the point. But what I'm saying to us is, if that's all we do, we go from one recreation to another recreation to another recreation, on and on and on, when will God ever be able to speak to you? When will he be able to tell you, bank, you need to fix this and that and that and that? Let me show it to you in the scriptures. And by the way, here, in this letter, do we now perhaps understand how when John 11 came, when Lazarus died, Martha was all fretty and Mary didn't? Because while she was sitting, something was being deposited in her life. On the day of adversity, she was able to stand. She was able to stand. Martha was employing all kinds of crazy theology on <laughs> John chapter 11. But Mary just sat still. She sat still. Okay. Isaiah chapter 8. No, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. And a post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me from undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Where is this? Is this the holy place, holy, most holy place, holy place, or out of court? Most holy place. Most holy place. Most holy place. But look at what happened here. When this guy was in the presence of God, the light of God shining forth upon him. Oh! I'm a prophet, but God, I'm seeing some things about myself I didn't know was there. It is in these very intimate times of sitting in the presence of God enjoying fellowship with, shipping with him. That's where those transactions take place. That's where I realize that even though I've done this and done that, there's more work for me to do. Rather than keep on bragging about how, uh, how I've arrived as a believer. When you spend time with God, it gets bigger, you get smaller. Amen. That's why John the Baptist said, he said, let him increase and I decrease. You stand before the presence of God? Hello? All the shine on your armor will become tarnished in a minute. Huge. Huge. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying to us tonight? Yes, we must celebrate our salvation. Absolutely. Yes, we must serve in the house of God, in the kingdom of God. But above all, what gives us the fuel, the passion, the ability to do those things well in a way that glorifies God is we must sit with him in the heavenly places and bask in his presence and receive new life, receive new passion, receive renewed energy. And most importantly, it is as we're in his presence that we're changed. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. Who would have told the prophet that he's a man of unclean lips? When he stands before kings, I say, Thus said the Lord and prophesy. Ah, prophet. He's a mighty man of God. Amen. But when he stands before God, your lips are unclean. That's what we all need. We all need that refreshing from the presence of God on a continual basis, going back and forth and back and forth. And that's how, how we begin to grow and grow and grow and grow. Amen. Let me show you one last one and then we're going to go. First uh, Samuel. No, no, Second Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter seven. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. David is just too much, honestly. It's a lot of passage here, but I won't read all of it. I'm just going to skip a few verses and get to the point I want to make. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when a king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given, me, given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of Cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, God, go, I'm sorry, then Nathan said to the king, Go, 
do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David that thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? And on and on and on it went. Okay, so uh, let me pick it up. Verse 12. Verse 12. Second Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. It shall be the house of my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of man and with the blows of the sons of man. Ah, verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, according to all of these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now look at David's response, verse 18. That's really where I'm going. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, you shouldn't read that too quickly. This man of God, maybe he came to a church service, he heard wonderful things that God said about him, as he's saying to you and I tonight, all the things that God has promised us, the things he's done for us, the things he's finished for us. He just didn't hear those things and just, and just say, hey, praise, ah, thank God for my salvation, and just walked away. The Bible said he made a deliberate effort. He went in. Where is in? Where is that word I am? In. Where is in? He went in and sat before the Lord. Which means for David, there was a particular place in his house, in his palace, there was a meeting point with him and God. It was established that when I want to locate God, whether it's this chair, is that chair, I don't know what it is. And for you, it may be anything. But David had a conscious place. Some place that he has identified that when I want to get with God, this is the place. And the Bible said the prophet spoke to him from the mouth of God and rather than shake the man's hand and say, go, thank you very much, he went in and sat before God. Think about that. Think about the intercourse between David and God in that moment. The deliberateness of living here tonight and saying, you know, when I get home at 9 o'clock, I'm going to sit down and just minister to God. The purposefulness that goes into that. <laughs> Listen to what it says to God. Look at what it says to God. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. So it means that for David, he had a present consciousness. That he was sitting face to face with his God. And you and I have what David don't have. We can do it in our car. We can do it in a parking lot. You can do it in church. You can do it in your living room. In your bedroom. In your toilet. Anywhere you are. Just the, the, the fact that you invite Holy Spirit. Ah, I want to speak to you. I want to, I want to just fellowship with you. My Lord and my God, I thank you. For your presence over my life. Instantly, just like that, God shows up. 
And look at what he says. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? When was the last time you and I talked to God like that? Or do we think we have an entitlement? I am in the United States of America. I live in Atlanta. Ah, I drive a Mercedes Benz. Therefore, God, you are fortunate if you speak to me today. If I call on you today, God, you are very fortunate. This is a king, folks. A king. What is my house that you have brought me this far? God, I remember what I, I used to chase after a smelly sheep. I'm on the throne of Israel today, but oh, no, no. I've not been here this long that I, can, I forget where I came from. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, oh Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, oh Lord God? Not what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. Ah! That is the deep calling upon the deep. But notice what he did. He did it sitting down. That's his posture. He needed to sit down there. It's finished. But yet, he fellowshiped. He ministered back to God. He reminded God of God's faithfulness. As if God needs to be reminded. I remember God from where you brought me from a mighty long way. When man said, I would never be anything. Yeah. Yet because of your love, where you have set upon me. Hallelujah. Here I am today. Thank you, Jesus. Your loving kindness, your goodness and your mercy, yet upon my life. What has God not done? What will he not do? So, Father God, tonight... I pray that you will speak to each one of us in a way, in a voice that we can hear, that we can heed, that we will not just be men or women of hearing many words. God, that we will celebrate our salvation because yes, indeed, by your blood, our sins are remitted and we are thankful, we are blessing your name for that. Out of that appreciation for what you've done, we will minister and serve one another. In love, in gentleness, in meekness. We would distribute the gifts you've given us to edify your body, to build your kingdom. And yes, Lord God, we will find the time to sit before your face, to enjoy your presence. You say, in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy, and at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God, may we find a pleasure of your goodness as we spend the time with you. In that time, in that place, on that secret place with you, God, begin to make the adjustments where we begin to be conformed to your image and your likeness. Changing us day by day until we look that much more like you. Father God, we give ourselves to you tonight. Call us away into that place with you. 
We thank you, Lord. We bless you. We praise your name. We magnify you. And as your people go home tonight, God, may they be refreshed by your presence. May your spirit guide them, lead them. Thank you for Johnny Moses. Watch over them and their loved ones and the businesses and families they left behind. Thank you, Father God. We bless and we honor you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.